You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. There are three stages in marriage. And the first stage is the honeymoon. Mm -hmm. You're enamored with your spouse. It's turned from, hey girl, hey, to be my boo forever. The wedding day sweeps you off your feet. You don't see any of their flaws. Everything is marvelous. You got like five Instagram filters over your life and it looks glorious. Your hopes and dreams start to run wild. There's an angelic glow about even the silliest thing they do. But then, a year, or maybe a week later, stage two comes and the memes start relating a little bit. You already ate yours, go away. You start defining the territory and knowing their habits a little bit. Thank you for putting up with me last night. This is the, we fought and we both went to work early text. I was being a beast. I appreciate your kindness. You're an amazing partner. I'm lucky. I'm lucky you like me. I wasn't that kind. I hit you with a pillow till you stopped crying. (laughs) It's what I needed at the time. The reality sets in, the strangeness starts to leak out. (sighs) When someone is murdered, the police investigate the spouse first. And that tells you everything you need to know about marriage. There is a serious stage two of marriage called the letdown, where we become disillusioned. The relationship suddenly seems more stress than success. It seems tired over a triumph. The sense of loneliness starts to creep back into our life. It may start with like a life setback or maybe a brush with authority or a decision that was big and it just didn't go that well. She or he gets on your nerves now. The faults abound. The once angel seems like a devil. Everything that was once cute now is annoying. And pridefully and wrongly, you start to believe your spouse is something like hypocritical or incompetent or unloving or disorganized or sloppy or too rigid or they care about the wrong things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But stage two is where you realize that marriage is hard, that your spouse is actually imperfect. The problems arise and the judgment abounds. And this is where spouses are tempted both physically and mentally to leave the marriage in search of an ideal marriage. They could do this in acting out in a hundred ways, or they're tempted to emotionally shut down altogether. I'd rather my heart be cold than broken. But the answer is realizing atop the list of hypocrites is ourself. That we don't need a better or different marriage, but we truly need faith in the greatest Christ. A Christ that shows us that we're loved in our faults, and we can truly love our spouse even if they actually are imperfect. 
that you're not dreaming it. They're sinners, but sinners like you. And that's where stage three has a chance. Stage three is called commitment. It's only when the second stage is really sojourned through that you can truly and genuinely with eyes wide open, the filters off, heart aflame with faith, commit to one another in love. And then commit over and over again, just like Christ has committed to us and is never changing. It's only in stage three that Christ-like love even starts to be wide-eyed and say, my partner is imperfect, and so am I. And as you start to receive the gospel for yourself, that in your imperfection and in your sin, you are loved and secure in Christ, only then can you start to let that love leak back out of your heart and love your spouse. And that's where the gospel becomes real in a marriage. That's where the gospel's at work. People get married for a lot of different reasons. They get married for the pursuit of happiness, for family, for fulfillment, for friendship, for finances, for safety, for comfort, for jealousy, for social pressure. But those reasons won't healthily and happily get you to the commitment stage because the alternative of quitting will seem way easier in stage two. Marriages need work for sure, but for Christians, often that work starts with us, not them. That's because Christian marriage at its core is an experience of the gospel. God designed marriage from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden to show us the gospel. Adam, the first man, was lonely, and this was before sin. This was in full relationship with God. Adam still longed to connect. He still had loneliness. That loneliness isn't a result of sin, but it is the natural state that we are a people who want to connect. So church, whenever you feel lonely, let it drive you to connect with others in healthy ways. Don't go to the internet. It's an empty well. Don't go to overeating or addiction or overworking or whatever the temptation is. When you feel loneliness, you got to get around people, whether it's a friend or a spouse or family or whatever. You have a drive to be connected because we have a relational God and we are made in his image, both man and woman. And Genesis 2 says this. Look what it says, church. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Verse 20. The man names all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam did his job. He did all of his work. He still wasn't satisfied. If you think work will fulfill you, I got news. Even in a sinless world, Adam's still lonely. Adam's still looking. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, opened up its place in the flesh, and that rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. The creation of man and woman is God's work. He brings these equals together to work together for his glory and their good. They are both made with equal dignity, worth, and value in the image of God, as Genesis 1 says. And too often, sexism reigns in this world. 
But God envisioned love and harmony between the sexes working together. And I love this part of scripture because Adam approved of God's work. Adam was very excited indeed for the workmanship of creating Eve. And our man Adam drops the first line ever of language recorded in human history. And he starts it with a love poem. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's ancient Hebrew for love at first sight that he heartily approves of what God has been up to. The long sleep was worth it. He's not so lonely anymore. He's been naming animals, and the first thing he does is he names this woman is my woman. And Ephesians 5 lets us in on the mystery of what is marriage. Why is marriage the way it is? And Paul tells us that marriage is the way it is to teach us about the gospel itself. Paul quotes the very next line of Genesis 2 here in Ephesians 5, verse 31. It says, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, be bonded to his wife, to find, to, and the two shall become one flesh, starting a new household, starting a new family together. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is to represent Christ in his church. The husband is to love the wife as Christ loves the church. And the wife is to respect her husband as we, the church, respect our Christ. And in this way, married Christians experience this gospel in live action, that two sinners who are also saints, are committed to each other, but they're also committed to a sinless Savior. That they start to experience how this gospel of sin and redemption plays out in live action. And when a healthy marriage is lived out, inevitably love, respect, forgiveness abounds. Stage three happens. The gospel begins to spring in their heart. And then suddenly the whole world takes notice that God gave us marriage to teach the whole world about the love of God, about the beauty of God, about the endless commitment of God, about God who loves and cares for us. They'll teach the world that marriage isn't over when hard times come or people change, but that's where the Christ-like love starts to grow. The husband's role, there's roles in marriage, and husband's role starts with the command from last week, verse 21. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The husband role starts with first submitting to Christ out of reverence or worship for him. Then he also submits to his wife as a fellow believer out of reverence for Christ because both man and woman are following Jesus. It's important that Christians marry Christians for this very reason. 2 Corinthians 6 explains more. But basically, if the marriage is all about the gospel, then both people need to be following Jesus or the results are often tragic. And if you don't want to believe scripture, man, we can get two hours together and I got two dozen stories for you. It's real tough to be married to someone who believes in Christ and wants to follow Christ and someone who doesn't want to follow Christ. And it usually is very hard. 
and even greater than equality and respect in the relationship, husbands are called to love their wife. Look at verse 25. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. I often say that this is the most wonderful and haunting verse in the entire Bible. Because if you have a wife, you must love her as Christ loves the church, and there's absolutely no escaping it. It's that specific. If you have a wife, you must love her to the point of death by combat level intensity. And there's no getting around it. Anything less is unfaithful. That the husband is called to mimic literally to his death a commitment and love that will surpass even his life. So the crucial question becomes, how does Christ love the church? How does Christ love us? Consider this, church. We were completely powerless to save ourselves from our sin problem. Remember, sins are things like the Ten Commandments, but they're also much more. Sin is anything we do without faith towards God. But God considered our need for a Savior and sent His only Son to live a perfect life on our behalf and then die for us on a Roman cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem called Skull, that he would die for the forgiveness of our sins, that when we repent and believe in Jesus, we're more than forgiven, we're actually adopted and brought into the family of God. And listen when Christ did this. Romans 5.8 elaborates. But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for a future you. He didn't die because you'd do good things later. He didn't die because you were better than your neighbor. Jesus died while you were still sinners because he loves you, both actually loving you and demonstrating the love to the world, kind of like a marriage, to experience the gospel in the marriage and demonstrate the gospel to a watching world. And the point is this, Jesus died for lost people, broken people, and rebels with no way home. There's no other way back to God. Jesus loved us when we were unlovely, and his love came for us long before we were even looking for him. So Christian husbands are to love their wives in the very same way. Verse 26 goes on. As Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, that Christ might sanctify her, that is, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of the, with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, in beauty, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And that's describing what Christ does in saving us. He saves us, but then he also is washing and making us a holy person to be presented to God. And in the same way, husband's love should make their wife thrive not just spiritually, it starts spiritually, but should thrive in every way possible. You can see a healthy marriage when a husband is love is making his wife come alive deeper and deeper into her soul. It looks like this, that the husbands are to love unconditionally and sacrificially when it's easy and when it's hard. The husbands are to die to themselves, die to their preferences and put her needs above his own. The husbands willingly become a servant without grumbling like our great Savior. 
And men, practically this means your wife, if you are married, needs to know without a doubt that you love her. And that ain't changing, whether it's a bad day, week, year, or decade. And if you're not down for that, you're not down for Christian marriage. Even when, and especially things, things are difficult and unlovely, even when she sins against you. And you'll do this by not only telling her, but in how you put your, her needs before your own. See, love without action is nothing. Christian love is more than just sentiment. It's a willingness to bleed for another. That's the example we've been given in Christ. Talk is cheap. Our words do matter, but our actions have always spoken so much louder. And a husband's called to love, but he's also called to lead. Look with me in verse 28. In the same way, so in the same way Christ is doing all this in saving us, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. We are members in the family of God. We are members of the body of Christ. We are loved by Christ in the same way the husband should love the members of his household, chiefly his wife. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife respect her husband. Husbands are called to spiritual leadership of love and care. And you may have heard the word spiritual leader thrown around a lot, but I really want to define what a spiritual leader is. And it has three components. The first component of being a spiritual leader is pursuing God. Your goal as a husband isn't to be the nightly Bible study master, but rather that year over year, your wife would see you falling in love with Jesus. May your wife see your conviction of starting your day in prayer and the word. May she be encouraged to seek intimacy with God as a result of seeing you walk closely with God. Verbal encouragement is good. Leading the family to a healthy local church is very good. But your time, talent, and treasure will speak the loudest and benefit her and, Lord willing, a family more than anything else. You must walk closely to God to lead yourself before you ever attempt to lead anyone else. But the second part of spiritual leadership is this, because as you attempt number one, you're going to fail. So the second component of a true spiritual leader is being quick to repent before her and before God, to readily admit when you're wrong, to go to God for grace and seek to make it right and embrace the changes that come with grace. Growth in the gospel is growing in knowledge of how sinful you are and seeing how truly great our Savior is. Thus, our maturity will be measured by our dependency on Christ. And that's the third component, that you would actively grow in maturity. That's what it talks about, caring for your own body, caring for your wife, caring for your life. The spiritual leadership is actively maturing to care for one's life and self. They care about what happens. And in that way, they care about their wife's life as well as their own. 
We are to physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually mature with age. But maturity isn't passive. You can be older and super immature. Age is not a guarantee of maturity, but maturity does take time. Maturity comes from evaluating our life and choosing positive changes, usually in the context of committed relationships. Just as Christ supports, cares, listens, guides us on our walk, so we help our spouse thrive in marriage by doing the very same thing, supporting and caring for her. You should regularly ask her, ask yourself, how can I help my wife, the woman entrusted to me, thrive? That's a mature question. And that's one to readily ask your spouse. The mature spiritual leader knows he's not always right. He listens and learns from his wife and they make decisions together. Being the leader doesn't mean you always have the best idea or your preferences are right. It means you lead a healthy discussion to decide what does following Jesus look like today, this week, this year, together. A husband is not a dictator in a Christian marriage. Instead, he knows what he's good at, knows what she's good at, and they learn to work together just like Adam and Eve. They truly are there to help each other accomplish the work to the glory of God. And worldly leadership, worldly leadership out in the world, the things that are celebrated, they're either usually domineering or spineless. And Christian leadership is neither. The spiritual leader is filled with the Spirit, trusting God's Word, submitted to Jesus, and it looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Leadership should look, spiritual leadership, like Galatians 5, when it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's not a mysterious equation, but rather it's character that makes all the difference. Men, ask your wife on the way home how you can grow here. What are those attributes? Would it be nice to see blossom in the next year? And the wife also has roles in marriage to live out the same fruit of the Spirit in the context of marriage. Look with me at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the, wife is, is the, head, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. The wife's role in a Christian marriage is to submit to one's husband as he follows Christ as well. And wives, this looks like peace. Peace in that you would bring a humble, submissive spirit to the relationship. That if you choose to be married, wives are called to submit to their husbands, not to all men, but just to the husband they choose. And many hear this and immediately cringe because they think that it means that a woman is inferior to a man. But that is not at all what it means. And don't let the world deceive you and steal scripture from you. Men and women are created equal by God and value, worth, dignity, as Genesis 1 tells us. We are created distinct in design, both physically and as in the image of God, that both of us represent the image of God as Genesis 2 describes with differing roles in marriage. And the word submission has been stolen by our culture to mean mindless servant 
or an opportunity ripe for abuse. And the word submit in Greek is hupotasso, and it's a military term that means the soldiers hupotasso under a commander or leader of their unit to work together, to have an order, and to have unity in what they're doing. So submission here means to help, to work together, to be peaceful, respectful, and embrace their roles. In the next verses, the relationship between parents and children, it'll use the word obey, but it doesn't use the word obey here. Rather, it says this is a relationship that works together, not strict obedience. And I want to be very careful and very clear here. Wives, do not submit to your husband in anything that would be sinful, period. Why? Because Jesus is who we submit to first, married or not. Second, this extends to any activity of the husband sinning against you. Do not submit to abuse in any form. Do not submit to his potentially reckless behavior in any form. Why? Because you submit to Christ first, and Christ is not calling you to put yourself ever in harm's way. If you're in that relationship today, let's talk, and we will move from there to see how we can help you get out of a terrible situation. All right? But just like Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve help one another. Adam leading, his wife helping. And God is called a helper, that same word it uses in Genesis 2. God calls himself a helper of us. To be a helper is not being diminished in that sense by any means. Likewise, husband is the head of the wife, like Christ is the head of the church. But then 1 Corinthians 11 uses the same word to say God the Father is the head of Christ. So whether you're the head or not the head doesn't mean anything in lesser dignity or value as Christ is not less than God but rather the difference is in role within the relationship. To be a peaceful coworker and a co-follower of Jesus, full of respect towards a husband who is striving to provide sacrificial love and direction in marriage. Submission, like Jesus to his father, is a matter of partnership and trust, never dominance, nor intimidation. One great way to respect your husband, to help with spiritual leadership, is to be a prayerful encourager. Men need affirmation. We are way insecure. No matter how impressive we try to be or look or feel, men are real insecure. And your wife is the person that can affirm and encourage you. And when you hit that commitment phase, that stage three, what it means on the ground is the husband learns to look to his wife for respect and affirmation first. And the wife learns to look at her husband for love and leadership first. Most affairs in my experience start right here, where the husband and the wife hit difficulty and start learning to look other, other places for the needs that should happily be met in the marriage. Affairs and things like that start in the heart. It's not just because of opportunities or things like that. There's a deeper level and a deeper fulfillment people are trying to achieve. You must support one another. And wives, you can use your words to make a great difference in your marriage, to build your husband up and have a cycle of love and respect. And this peace and encouragement matters in a Christian marriage because we represent Christ's love for the church, his bride. This is the mystery of Genesis of why marriage was first instituted by God. 
It's companionship and procreation. But the first purpose is that man would love his wife like Jesus loves the church, and the church in, in turn would respect and love Jesus just as a wife to a husband, showing the whole world the gospel. A marriage will flourish when a husband's love and a wife's respect intermingle, and that way learn to live the gospel together. Just like a walk with God flourishes as you bathe in God's love and learn to respectfully follow him. Church, marriage is love marinating on the gospel for a long time. And hopefully it gets more beautiful as you go. And I want to talk about two more things. First, if you've been in a marriage and it's not worked out, I'm sorry for whatever reason. And I just want to say God loves you. He's here with you. You are divorced, not dead, and God can renew and redeem and write new chapters in the story. Amen, church. If you're single today, I got two big applications, all right, church? If you're single today, two applications from this text. First, remember in Christ, you don't have to be married. You do not have to be wed. Christianity was wildly countercultural. Then it's wildly countercultural. Now that singleness is a gift to feel called to in 1 Corinthians 7. However, if you desire to get married, marriage is also a gift. But both single and married, you can have a deep, rich experience of Jesus and his gospel for a lifetime. One is not better than the other. They are just different paths through this short time on earth. If you desire to marry, this is my second encouragement. I encourage you to only date Christians and then to date them in order to marry them. This means to look for the sort of person that you'd be comfortable having this rich experience of marriage. Our world has a hundred terrible examples of marriage thrown at us constantly. But scripture has a very specific in mind when it comes to marriage. And if this doesn't sound like a good thing with that person, then that person is not for you. I'll give you a little checklist. It looks like this. It's a simple one. Ooh, about fall over. Don't do that. Checklist. Do they love Jesus? That's a great question. Don't believe their words. My Angelou said, when people show you who they are, believe them. Talk is cheap. People will say anything to date you. You're a catch. Look at their words. If they don't happily submit to God and their life as Lord, if they don't happily submit in a local church, if they don't happily submit to the government and their workplace, treat their parents well, whether their parents are good or bad or whatever, if they don't submit to authority now, man, they're going to be terrible when authority's in their hands. That's setting you up for a nightmare of a marriage. Number two, is the relationship pulling you closer or further from Jesus and his people? Psalm 34 says, come and let us worship the Lord together. That's a great life verse for a marriage, that we are together to worship Jesus better together. If you feel this man or woman is pulling you away from Christ, and when you talk about it, it still pulls you away from Christ, guess what's going to happen in the marriage? People are on their best behavior in dating. It's probably going to go downhill in some habits after marriage when people kind of aren't trying to be impressive. And leads to number three right here. Are you attracted to them? I know you might be like, man, that sounds a little controversial coming from the pastor. But here's the deal. I need to be attracted to them in three ways. And they're in order. Are you spiritually attracted to them? 
do you love their relationship and respect it that they have of Christ? That's the thing that's most likely to endure the longest and define most of their life. Second is their emotional, personality, relational life. That will endure for a while, but that will change. The man Justin met in college has changed, thankfully, in the last 15 years, and hopefully in the next 15. So are you in love with who they are spiritually? Are you in love with who they are emotionally and personality? And then also, are you attracted to them physically? You don't have to compromise in all three, but put them in order. The things that will last because the physical will deteriorate and change. We can be beautiful as we age, but we will change. That's just part of life. But as you look at that, I just want to challenge you, if you're single, to trust God for the triple threat. Trust God to be a triple threat. Trust God to seek a triple threat, that you would genuinely stand there saying, I want to marry this person to glorify God and for my good. And I have reasons and evidence. My friends who are godly think it's a good idea. My family who is godly thinks it's a good idea. I'm asking their opinions that when you stand on your wedding day, that you can be full of hope and joy that this is a great idea, not filled with doubt or terror, or just caught up in big emotions. There's lots of hope and joy to be found in marriage, but you don't have to be wed, church. Church, the gospel makes marriage glorious. Marriage shows us the power of the gospel. Marriage is desirable, but it is not easy. It's hard because we're sinners, yet it's worth it because of the gospel and the great hope it promises. The hope of your marriage isn't your spouse, but your Savior. 